This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have a great guest today in our second segment, Jefferson Morley, former Washington Post reporter and author, will join us to talk about a book he wrote a couple years ago titled Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA. We had Jeff Morley on this program a few years ago, which time I promised to read that book. Unfortunately, it took being at Duquesne University at the conference and Jeff standing about two feet away from a table where they were selling the book that shamed me into going over and buying a copy. It was an outstanding effort. I'm looking forward to speaking with him about it in our second segment. I would like to also note, for the first time, what will be a, a series of plugs, that Jeff Morley is also the moderator for the very excellent website, jfkfacts.org. I can't recommend this to you highly enough. But let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 14th of November. It was on November 14th in 1587 that the English navigator Thomas Cavendish while leading the third circumnavigation of the globe, captured the Spanish treasure ship Santa Ana off the coast of California. That sounds like a hell of a story. I wish I knew more about it. We'll see if we can't do some reading and talk about it on next week's show. On November 14th in 1770, the British explorer James Bruce reached Lake Tana, which was the source of the Blue Nile in Ethiopia. His book about the journey, Travels to Discover the Source of the Nile, is a classic. And on November 14th in 1889, New York World reporter Nellie Bly sailed from New York on her celebrated attempt to circle the globe in less than the 80 days of Jules Verne's fictional hero, Phineas Fogg. Turns out Nellie made it just over 72 days. Our quote of the day comes from Abraham Lincoln, who once said, If I had eight hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend six hours sharpening my axe. Our quip of the day comes from George Orwell who once said, As with the Christian religion, the worst advertisement for socialism is its adherence. Our joke of the day comes from the writers of Conan O'Brien, who noted last week, Matt Lauer and Al Roker had prostate exams live on the Today Show. So I guess the Today Show has finally cracked the code on what people want to see first thing in the morning. Our anecdote of the day is about Bertrand Russell. Once asked if he would be prepared to die for his beliefs, the mathematician, logician, and Nobel laureate responded, Of course not. After all, I could be wrong. Our stat of the day is 50%, which represents the French national statistic on the increase in homeless living on the streets of Paris over the past 12 years. Said sociologist Julian Damon to The Guardian, In London, you can't sleep in a tent and stay in the same place all day. In Paris, you can. There's no criminalization of begging. Yes, apparently thanks to the dismal European economy, people are making their way to France to hang out. And no, we don't know whether this is inspiring some of the people here in Sacramento who apparently have the goal of bringing all the homeless in the western United States here to our local environment. But as far as I can see, that does appear to be their goal, to which I would like to add that that opinion, like all those heard in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But I do know this, if your problem is too many pigeons, you're not going to solve it by feeding them. 
All right, let's see if we can't jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for evading Big Brother after the Chinese government admitted that its ubiquitous security cameras cannot see through the dense pollution shrouding the nation's cities. Said one Chinese scientist, on the smoggiest days, we may need to use radar. On the other hand, it was a bad week this week for Chicago with the news that one World Trade Center has now been awarded the status of being the tallest building in the United States. One World Trade Center will be officially 1,776 feet high, but 400 feet of that is an antenna, at least in the view of Chicagoans. Apparently, the panel that gets to decide these things said, no, no, it's a tower and it's part of the architecture, so we're going to consider that as part of the building's height. Thus, World Trade Center 1 will officially be the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, taller than the former Sears Tower, now called the Willis Tower in Chicago, which measures a mere 1,450 feet. And it was an ugly week this week for the Great Lakes, with the news that scientists have confirmed for the first time that Asian carp are in fact breeding in the Great Lakes watershed, a bad sign for native fish whose habitats could be taken over by this invasive, nasty species. Tell you, between the stonefish in the Atlantic, uh, the pythons running amok in Florida, and uh, the carp now in the Great Lakes, you have to wonder, why aren't we doing a better job of keeping these crazy species out of the United States? Federal fisheries biologist Dwayne Chapman told the Associated Press last week that it would have been a lot easier to control these fish if they'd been limited in the number of places where they could spawn. The Asian carp were imported decades ago to restrict algae growth in sewage treatment lagoons, but they escaped into the wild where they consume huge quantities of plankton and wreak havoc on the native aquatic food chain. We'll continue to follow this sad story. And it was both a bad and ugly week last week for white supremacist Greg Cobb, who made the news some time ago when he said he wanted to establish a white enclave in Leith, North Dakota. Somewhere along the way, he thought it would be a good idea to submit a DNA sample to Trisha Goddard, who apparently has a local talk show in North Dakota. He got the results back while they were taping the show live, and it turns out, well, he's 14% sub-Saharan African. Said Cobb, I had no idea I wouldn't have gone and done that, and I still don't believe it. I'll find out with real science and get the whole DNA map. Well, good luck to you, sir. All right, from the good news file, and every so often we just have to insert a good news file, we have the following blurb from the Sacramento Bee. It's not inconceivable. No, The Princess Bride is coming to the stage. Disney theatrical production said Monday it's planning to adapt the novel and screenplay for the beloved romantic comedy. The creative team and timetable for the project have yet to be determined. The film starred Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Christopher Guest, Fred Savage, Wallace Shawn, Billy Crystal, and Carol Kane. It gave the world the immortal line, My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. The book was written in 1973 by William Goldman, who adapted it for the 1987 film directed by Rob Reiner. As mentioned in this program, it is one of our favorites, and we're looking forward to seeing that stage production. And and by the way, happy birthday to Wallace Shawn, who played Vizzini, the supposedly smart guy among the three kidnappers of Princess Buttercup. It occurred to us in this program that we 
We might want to try and get William Goldman on the show. He wrote a fantastic book called Adventures in the Screen Trade and has written some very memorable screenplays, a couple of which won him Oscars for All the President's Men and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, I believe. We asked our Hollywood pal Don Rose to look into that, and he came up with a couple of websites, which were basically about how to contact William Goldman. The punchline to it all was he's a bit of a recluse and your odds are not good, but you never know. All right, let's do a few letters. We heard from David about a week ago, who wrote us to say, Longtime listener, first-time emailer. I know you directed your criticism of the anti-pot farm environmentalists towards the public figures and politicians, but I do feel that it came off to me, at least, that the issue was downplayed. My family works with fish and wildlife. My father actually gives a popular presentation on the impacts of pot farming on wildlife. And I know many people working in other state agencies of water, natural resources, public health, and toxic substance control. Of course, pot farming is a hot topic to discuss in this social circle because the impacts are becoming more severe while it is so easily avoidable. We are entirely frustrated with growers, as well as policymakers, politicians, and the feds in general, as you are, I'm sure. I want to point out that this is a public health issue, primarily in regards to pesticides. Many, many growers do not carefully dole out pesticides or chemical fertilizer. The excess chemicals end up in the water, wildlife, fish, and most alarmingly in the medication, quote-unquote, that people are taking into their bodies. There's no way for a patient to verify how the plant was cultivated. Having an organic, quote-unquote, pot certification alone would alleviate this, in my opinion. In closing, I just wanted to lobby the importance of this issue. Our natural resources are strained enough without another gold rush of fools looking to make quick money. The frustration of the people on the ground dealing with it makes, us, makes it a sensitive one. I think we can all agree that the feds above all deserve criticism. Thanks for your quality broadcasts. And David, thank you. We also want to thank Gary Chu for sending us one of the Borowitz reports last week. Said Andy Borowitz a few days ago, a new study released today indicates that Americans are safe from the threat of gun violence, except in schools, malls, airports, movie theaters, workplaces, streets, and their own homes. Also, highways, turnpikes, libraries, places of worship, parks, universities, restaurants, post offices, and cars. Plus, driveways, garages, gyms, stores, military bases, and a host of other buildings, structures, and sites. NRA CEO Wayne LaPierre applauded the study, saying it reinforced his organization's long-held position that the U.S. does not need additional gun laws. Saying, quote, The study makes it abundantly clear that Americans are in no danger of gun violence except in these isolated 413 places. He added that he hoped the study would spark a conversation, quote, about the root cause of mass shootings, people who recklessly show up at places where they could be shot at. Andy Borowitz, he could be a national treasure. And we also have to thank our good pal Jerry Rose for forwarding us a piece titled Bitch, Bitch, Bitch. They consist of actual complaints received by Thomas Cook Vacations from some of their dissatisfied customers. Some of these are interesting, like, On my holiday to Goa in India, I was disgusted to find that almost every restaurant served curry. I don't like spicy food. Here's a good one. We booked an excursion to a water park, but no one told us we had to bring our swimsuits and towels. We assumed it would be included in the price. How about this one? Quote, there were too many Spanish people there. The receptionist spoke Spanish. The food was Spanish. No one told us there'd be so many foreigners. Or, it took us nine hours to fly home from Jamaica to England. It took the Americans only three to get home. This seems unfair. 
Then we forwarded this on to our friend Stan Godwin, uh, our Asian travel specialist. He wrote back, he especially liked, Although the brochure said there was a fully equipped kitchen, there was no egg slicer in the drawers. Well, you know, sometimes those brochures just are incomplete. My personal favorite is, I was bitten by a mosquito. The brochure did not mention mosquitoes. Okay, note to anyone out there writing brochures for travel agencies, mention the mosquitoes. Several of you have written us to ask about uh, this blitz of TV programming that's showing up in conjunction with the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination. And there have been some worthwhile efforts, at least some of the, the footage that's shown back from 1963 is just amazingly comprehensive. But although we were offered by a publicist a chance to interview some of the actors that appeared in Killing Kennedy, we turned them down. And sounding off on that very same made-for-TV movie in a letter to the Bee was Paul L. Sesser of Duran, who wrote, Regarding Killing Kennedy sets record, readers of this article need to know who owns the National Geographic Channel. A hint was provided in the piece by crediting the author of books about Kennedy and Lincoln, Fox News' Bill O'Reilly. Yes, Fox News' parent company, News Corp., not the National Geographic Society, is the majority owner of the National Geographic Channel. Readers should do a Google search for O'Reilly, Kennedy, and Inside Edition, his former television job. His piece on the CIA and Lee Harvey Oswald is much closer to the truth than his book, which the National Geographic Channel used for this program. We have no way of knowing whether Paul Elsesser heard our chat with Jim DiEugenio about that very subject some months ago, but he is correct. Back when he worked for Inside Edition, Bill O'Reilly was convinced that there was some mischief afoot in the Kennedy assassination. He was even down in Florida trying to interview George DeMornshield, who was then being subpoenaed by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. We should note as an aside that House Select Committee investigator Gaten Fonzi, who was well acquainted with Mr. O'Reilly, was down there attempting to interview DeMornshield. He left his card for him. DeMornshield came home took a look at the card, went upstairs, and shot himself in the head with a shotgun. Apparently, he didn't want to answer any more questions about his relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald. And I can't remember whether I told this story a few weeks back, but at the Duquesne conference that Dr. Serlweg put on in Pittsburgh last month, I had a chance to chat a bit with Gaten Fonzie's widow. She mentioned how Bill O'Reilly came down to Florida and was given his first job by her husband. She mentioned that O'Reilly was paid $25 a month. She sort of paused and contemplated and said, yeah, from $25 a month to how many millions a year? At that exact moment, this correspondent interjected, he was overpaid then. An opinion I continue to stand by. I think we mentioned that Jeff Morley was part of a media panel at the Duquesne Conference along with uh, uh, other guests we've had on this program, Lisa Pease, David Talbot, Russ Baker, and Jerry Polikoff. But the consensus certainly was that uh, the story of the JFK assassination is not like other stories. When Jeff Morley worked for the Washington Post, he was taken aside after wanting to cover some interesting angles of, this, uh, of the assassination and told, this is not a good career move, Jeff. piece from the New York Times, as reprinted in the Sacramento Bee by Adam Clymer, was interesting in regard to this. It notes that today's textbook view of Kennedy provides a harsher view of Camelot. We've said on this program many times that over the years, a lot of effort has been put into tarnishing the legacy of John F. Kennedy. And indeed, Adam Clymer notes that 
The President John Kennedy that students learn about today is not their grandparents JFK. In a high school textbook written by John Blum in 1968, Kennedy was a tragic hero cut down too soon in a transformative presidency. By the mid-80s, that heady excitement was a distant memory and Kennedy a diminished one. A textbook written in 1987 by James Henretta and several colleagues complained of mythologizing his tenure and said the high hopes he generated produced only rather meager legislative accomplishments. I must say I was rather surprised in reading this piece by Clymer to note that a uh, a textbook, college textbook, 1982, written by Mary Beth Norton, which is reportedly widely used today in advanced placement courses, said that Kennedy pursued civil rights with a notable lack of vigor. They blamed him for the missile crisis, saying Cuban-Soviet fears of invasion were stoked by the 1961 Bay of Pigs landing and other U.S. moves against Cuba. They say Kennedy's real legacy was a huge military expansion that helped goad the Russians into an accelerated arms race. Well, we don't have time to take that apart, but uh, let's just say we don't agree with it. I think we need to take a short break. You're going to want to stay tuned for Jefferson Morley. So don't go away. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.